my guest today is Bryn Tannehill. And the subject of our conversation principally is uh, her book, American Fascism. Uh, so, so Bryn, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your background? So uh, I graduated from the Naval Academy, uh, degree in computer science. I did 10 years on active duty, primarily as a helicopter pilot and analyst. Uh, did four deployments to the sandbox. Uh, after that, I uh, got my master's degree from the Air Force Institute of Technology and Operations Research, and I spent the past decade in private industry, most of it spent at a D.C. area think tank uh, working on defense and uh, security policy. So, so do you see the thesis of your I, I, we'll get to the thesis of your of your book in a moment. Um, do you see that as connected to concerns about uh, national security, national defense? So where the overlap lies is that during the academic portion of my career, um, graduate school, uh, one of the big things I was interested in was looking at how democracies fail and predicting when, what conditions create failure and using mathematics to do so. Um, and looking at the kinds of things that indicated government has failed, including starvation, uh, civil war, genocide, um, and trying to figure out ways to predict when that's going to happen uh, using econometric and social data. Um, and I retained that kind of interest over the years. And the, the work I did was, was leveraged by CENTCOM and USAID and the State Department uh, because it focused on Africa and the Middle East. Um, but as we saw U.S. politics uh, devolving and as we saw a schism developing within the United States, and I started looking at it and recognizing that a lot of my prior work um, related to looking at the United States and saying, asking whether or not we've got big problems, um, and the answer was yes. And what was even more refreshing is that right about the time I was getting to the end of writing the book, one of the people that had been one of my primary sources for my earlier academic work updated uh, some of the stuff he'd done and basically came to the same conclusions I did. So um, this isn't just me kind of going out on a limb. There is a sizable number of social and political scientists and people who do um quantitative forecasting saying, yeah, we've got big problems when you look at the fundamentals. So what would what would those, can, can you characterize some of those problems, some of the features of the U.S. political uh, landscape that you see that are sort of indices of a potentially failing democracy? My book takes kind of a holistic approach to understanding the conditions that we're seeing in the United States now. So the first three chapters are really essentially history with a heavy focus on race and the rise of the religious right and failure of reconstruction um, and the rise of the Trumpist movement. Um, the chapters after that deal with propaganda, news media, um, and the absolute destruction of def uh, faith in expertise and evidence and science. Um, and it also talks about uh, the demographics of white evangelicals and what sets them apart from America as a whole and um, makes them kind of an ideological outlier, but an ideological outlier that wields immense power within the United States, 
right? Um, and then it also talks about wealth inequality, um, uh, which is one of the big factors in there and how that contributes to some of the things that my studies looked at back in grad school. Um, basically, governments that can no longer provide essential goods and services to citizens um, are a warning sign of impending failure, uh, of uh, that the government's going to fail or that very bad things are going to happen. Um, it also looks at how a minority is securing a future for themselves where they win and everyone else loses that uh, essentially rigging the elections through gerrymandering voter suppression, uh, being able to overturn elections, um, uh, essentially having elections that are as tilted as far in one party's direction as possible, even when that party is becoming a smaller and smaller minority. Uh, the, the last couple of chapters uh, focus on what, what is fascism and does that apply to what we're seeing now, uh, what essentially is a right-wing populist movement with heavy religious influences. Um, the last two chapters look at how other countries uh, since the end of the Cold War have failed at democracy um, and trying to look at the best analogies for where the United States is. And what I came up with as well, and what other researchers, uh, particular uh, Levitsky, Way, and Lucan, uh, and Gillens and Page all looked at is that there's when democ modern democracies fail since the end of the Cold War, they fail in very specific ways. And their conclusions uh, are essentially that it's very, very difficult to come back from losing democracy. Um, and then the final chapter is kind of looking ahead to where we're going and what this means if we lose, lose our democracy uh, to essentially what amounts to a minoritarian group that is wildly out of step with what the rest of America believes. Hmm. Yeah. So there are a number of threads I want to sort of pull on there. Uh, so one, when you, when you talk about sort of um, the incompetence of a, let's say the, the, the centralized in our system, it would be the federal government, right? The centralized power uh, incompetence with respect to providing certain kinds of services. One of the, one of the, frankly, bizarre things uh, of many, uh, but one of the really bizarre things about the COVID response was you saw this argument from the administration in, you know, in what, 2019, I guess it would have been, 20, no, sorry, I'm, time is like meaningless now, uh, <laughs> 2020, no, 2020, yes. right, yeah, yeah 2020. Basically, this is March 458, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. In uh, March, April, May of 2020, you saw the the uh, effort by the administration to sort of have the federal government dictate what level of risks state were states were going to assume, and then let the states themselves sort of uh, deal with adverse results of the risks that they were assuming, which strikes me as sort of the opposite of the way that the federal system is supposed to operate, right? I mean, you got a lot of political scientists who say basically large liberal democratic states are something akin to like a sophisticated uh, insurance scheme with guns, right? Um, mm -hmm. And what you saw was totally the opposite. Like we're going to dictate how much risk you have to assume and then you're going to be on your own uh, in dealing with that risk. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that, that, that kind of response? So let's look at what my, what my previous work did, uh, which is basically identifying starvation usually isn't because there isn't enough food in the world to help that country. It's because that country is either trying to starve out particular groups of people or because the government has just failed so badly that there's no roads, no vehicles. You've got a drought, but then the government proves incapable of providing the security, the vehicles, the roadways, the infrastructure to distribute that food. So those are kind of the two ways you end up with famine. Um, genocide, obviously, something's gone horribly, horribly wrong, and the government's decided to exterminate a group of its own citizens. And the other one of the big indicators looking at are bad things about to happen uh, in terms of civil war uh, turned out to be infant mortality rates. When you start to see infant mortality rates hit an inflection point, that was actually one of the better indicators that the government has lost the ability to provide for pregnant women, whether it's medical services or food or clean water. But that tended to be the, the a, a tripwire. Why is uh, that so strongly correlated? I'm I'm curious. Like, is it? It's just sort of you you put the you put the different factors into the sort of Bayesian analysis or whatever, and then that that just turns out to be like a really significant variable. Like, or what? Do you have a sense of like what the causal relationship so is? So I I can only hypothesize because I was running 52 variables over a whole bunch of countries, <laughs> running through you know, factor analysis and uh, discriminant analysis and neural networks and just trying to figure out what, what it could pick up and then duplicate with holdout data. Um, but my best guess was that pregnant women, because uh, pregnancy exacerbates so many health conditions and are susceptible to so many different things because immune systems are compromised, uh, much more vulnerable to... Um, lack of medical care. It's a, it's a very vulnerable point for people who should otherwise be healthy. When they start dying or when their babies start dying, that's usually, a, that's usually for, and that tended to be an indicator of civil war. It's usually a sign that the government has failed the people who need it most and also get people the angriest. When your children are dying because your government screwed up, that gets people mad. Um, that's usually either people flee or they fight when, when things have gotten bad enough that, that their children are increasingly dying. That's a hypothesis, but it seemed to be a pretty good indicator for, um, when things were starting to get bad. Here's the terrifying thing is that we hit those kinds of inflection points in a lot of Southern states back in the 2010s that we started to see infant mortalities uh, and maternal mortality in particular start ticking upwards. Um, that's, that's bad. Um, but, and the, the COVID crisis highlighted that. That's, we have a federal government that has been unable to get states to do what's necessary to keep people from, you know, randomly licking, you know, light poles, you know, to prove that COVID is a hoax. Um, You've, you have uh, the, the federal government uh, taking an attitude of uh, we're not going to help the states that don't vote for us. Uh, remember with Jared Kushner, um, Gavin Newsom was going his own way and, and uh, Jared Kushner reportedly took a, well, they didn't vote for you, let them die kind of attitude, which is, well, that's, that's, that's going to create friction within a country. 
And then you have other things, you know, where uh, Republicans at the state level were talking about things like Granny would be glad to die for the economy, right? You know, the lieutenant these governor kinds, of Texas. Yeah, that was that was something correct. else. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't just him. You had, you know, your your uh, Ben Shapiro's and Sean Hannity's echoing similar sentiments. So this kind of um, it's not our it if 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 our citizens die, who cares? Is kind of a, a summary. And if it's and especially if it's citizens in a state who didn't vote for me, awesome. This is. Kind of capturing in a nutshell just how far down we've gone and how little the government is capable of doing at the federal level. And if you look at how hard Republicans are going to fight something as simple as vaccine mandates um, to do specific things, um, that when we have vaccine mandates for all sorts of things, I got 17 different vaccines to uh, go into onto active duty in the Navy, uh, plus anthrax and a couple of other weird ones. Um, it's, it's, it's performative, uh, manufactured outrage uh, designed to, again, uh, ramp up friction within the United States, us versus them, um, to see government that isn't my government is absolutely tyrannical. Yeah. So, so there's a, there's a, a, a a sort of propagandistic element to how some of these, uh, political values are expressed in particular situations, right? Like um, you've got folks that are all about liberty, but then when it comes to the liberty of particular institutions or industries or, or private companies to say, hey, if you want to do such and so that involves us, then you have to get vaccinated. And they say, well, wait, no, this is, you know, you can't, you don't have the freedom to do that because people have, well, it's, I, yeah, I mean, what what do you make of that? I mean, you say it's performative. I think that's exactly right. But like, I mean, how do you, yeah. So the, it talks about this a little bit in chapter four, but the main purpose of uh, conservative media at this point is to drive outrage. And it's always, it's outrage of against anything. It doesn't matter the target, right? We can all forget back in March when, um, when COVID levels were dropping and the vaccine was coming online, things looked like they're getting better. It was Dr. Seuss, um, you know, removing some books and what else? Um, it was in the publisher made that decision, theory. right? It was the publisher. And Mr. Potato Head. Mr. Potato oh, Mr. Head. Oh, yeah, right, right. Right. It, it's just, it's one series of outrages after another to keep the base engaged on meaningless culture war issues that appeal to an us versus them mentality. It's that woke left that's that's destroying Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss and infiltrating our schools, you know, with with a theory that's only taught in graduate school sociology programs. Yeah. Funny, true story. Uh, during the whole debate, I asked my 15 year old daughter here in a deep, deep blue county. He's like, hey, Kira, have you ever heard of critical race theory? She goes, no. What's that? There you go. So it's it's but the main goal is repetitive. I talk about the fire hose of falsehood um, that was a, a concept to describe Russian propaganda, which is used extensively here and now, you know, and it's high volume, 
um, lack of consistency, um, and absolutely no need to be particularly truthy. Um, and that's kind of one of the hallmarks of, of uh, modern fascism is this, this as well, not modern fascism, but fascism in general is that it is tends to be very conspiracy theory driven. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 sheer volume of information is uh, I mean, I, I think and you know this in the book as well. I mean, that's where sort of people who are concerned about preserving democratic institutions who have a sense of um, well, who are concerned about the truth, right? That's that's where de despair sort of sets in, right? When you just look at the because it's like um, you make reference to the book uh, "Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible." Yes, the author's name escapes me at the moment. Um, yeah, he's a Russian author, right. expat. Right. Yeah, I, and so he sort of he uh, marks kind of an inflection point in the in the Russian uh, sort of political situation where the the uh, folks in power went from basically trying to contain information and control the flow of information to saying like, yeah, we can't really control or contain messaging. So we're just going to flood the zone with tons of bad information and everybody will just kind of shrug and say, well, who knows? Steve Bannon and Carl Rove talked about shaping, creating your own reality with putting out information out there, high volume, uh, repetitive, that says the thing that you want people to think or believe, be it true or not. And that's exceptionally dangerous. And we're seeing it, uh, you know, the pandemic has brought so many of these things uh, to light. But it's kind of just another symptom of a uh, the deeper issues with the United States and the deeper issues that we see with the GOP base at this time. Why do you think that the religious right is so susceptible to these kind of totalitarian fascist, uh, propagandistic type moves. So if you look at the American religious right, I mean, particularly white evangelicals who tend to be the Trump base, right? They're concentrated in the American South and the Bible Belt, which traditionally is, the, and my book draws the clear connection, is that this is where slavery and reconstruction failure and Jim Crow came from. They have a very social dominance orientation, a deeply held, if not conscious, belief that they should be on the top, that they are the most American Americans. And this drives them towards leaders who promise them a return to the way things were, make America great again. And that's one of the hallmarks of fascism is a belief in a better mythic past that was somehow destroyed by others. Right. Again, hitting the us versus them, as highlighted by Jason Stanley of Yale University in his book on fascism. And and there's multiple things that make them susceptible. Certainly, I'm going to this is probably offensive to a lot of people. But if you are very, very religious, um, you're going to be much more uh, accepting of thinking that would be driven by things that are not based in science, right? Thinking that is supernatural in, in nature probably is a little bit easier for you to accept. 
also Trump's base. There is a wide division in education levels. The amount of education you need to sift through all the stuff on social theory and um, what constitutes good research and bad research and the, the belief that you can't trust experts, right, leads people to, and that's chapter five, is that it's been hammered in for 30 years by, by the right-wing media to a group of people who were always kind of wary of those, you know, ivory tower eastern elites, right, or whatever, or west coast elites, this, you know, San Francisco values, right, that, that you can't trust the experts, you can't trust science. Listen to someone else. And when those someone else's, you know, start peddling something as a miracle cure, as something that makes sense to them, even if it has no scientific basis, there's a greater willingness to accept that because people are naturally inclined to believe things that they already sort of believe or things that they want to hear, right? Um, you know, if which is illustrated in the book by the the, the Pizzagate conspiracy theory where. You found that people were willing, people who really, really hated Hillary Clinton were willing to entertain the notion that she ran a cannibalistic, satanic, child molestation stealing ring underneath a pizza place in Washington, D.C. Right. If you hate Hillary Clinton enough, those are the kinds of things you want to believe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. So I don't. Um, I don't think anything that you said about sort of the attitudes towards science is. Uh, I mean, if someone is offended by that, then they're just. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, I don't really know what to tell them, right? Because I mean, you, you, what what you've described has been a. Uh, I mean, enforced at an institutional level, within white evangelicalism like you in order to have certain um employment opportunities right in a lot of white evangelical post-secondary institutions you ha you have to be willing to go on record and say that the earth was created in six 24-hour periods no more than ten thousand years ago um and 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 oddly enough the initial sort of evangelical opposition, right? So like William Jennings Bryan, for example, right? Like uh, Gary Wills notes this, um, among other historians, right? I mean, his main concern about uh, the uh, the uh, the messaging around evolution was that social Darwinism would sort of take hold, right? Yeah. And, and 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 what and it, what's so bizarre is I mean like turn on conservative media and like what you're getting is a deluge of sort of social Darwinist messaging around economic policy, right? Um, but but when, yeah, I mean when it comes to like evolutionary biology, evangelicals have been conditioned to think for several generations that scientists are just lying to them, and they're and all part of like the bad team. You know. And and that's and one of the things that and this isn't in the book, but um, they seize on any time science has been wrong to say, well, science is always wrong. You can't trust science. Whereas the truth of the matter is, is that scientific understandings of everything evolve. And when one theory or hypothesis gains traction and then it's tested and tested and tested and then, oops, nope, that doesn't work. We need a better theory. 
that's how it works, you know. And if, I mean, in physics, right? Rutherford's plum pudding model, model of the atom, right? That's that's an example of well, you know, he kind of got it right. There's electrons and mass, and it's in a thing that's hard to define, and you know, um, well, no, then then they figured out a better model because Rutherford's model didn't explain a lot of phenomena that they were seeing as they did more detailed. Um, chemistry and physics experiments right so that's just so and again with Fauci um, you know at the beginning we weren't quite sure whether or not um, COVID was spread through fomites whether it could be spread through aerosols or whether it was just droplets in the air right and it took us you know three four five months to definitively work through yeah it's it's droplets it's aerosols and not very much fomites. And that's just the way science works. But generally, you have to operate on a day-to-day basis off of the best that science can do in that moment, right. especially if right. you're not an expert in that field, right? Right, yeah. So so folks point to the fact that sort of the, uh, you know, medical science, uh, the thinking in medical science has changed around the novel coronavirus, it's a novel virus, right? Uh, and given the way that, uh, you know, science works, I'd be concerned if uh, none, you know, none of the, uh, none of the best thinking uh, did change uh, over time. That would be a concern. You know, uh, right? and, it, and a lot of times truth is complicated and stories are complicated. Uh, one of the things that people have noted is, wow, this, this COVID vaccine developed so quickly. Well, actually, uh, you know how COVID is, it's called COVID-19, but it's also SAR, called SARS-CoV-2. It's the uh, COVID variant too, right? Well, the first one we saw back in the early 2000s, and they started work on developing an mRNA vaccine for it then. And when this popped up, a lot of the work for developing a vaccine had already been done 10 years ago, but the work, and they got very close to getting done, um, but they dropped it because the epidemic didn't happen and government funding dried up after a couple of years when it's like, well, yeah, it didn't have a high enough R not to turn into a pandemic. So eh, whatever, put it away. You know, so that was part of the way we ended up getting a vaccine so quickly uh, is that a lot of the, the, pre-work on a similar virus had already been done. But that's one of the big reasons for for vaccine hesitancy is, oh my God, it went so quickly, which the answer is, well, yes, it went fairly quickly because most of the early level work on it, on the science of it had been done 10, 15 years ago. Right. And, and, and uh, subsequent sort of phases of the, of the trial process were, were sped along. Now, I mean, it's true that um, we haven't had years and years of data on sort of uh, long-range uh, effects of, of the vaccine, but it's not as though we're completely in the dark, right? I mean, uh, you know, scientists can extrapolate based on information from other other vaccines that have been developed, like, okay, what can we expect to happen? Yeah, essentially, vaccines stimulate an immune response, and that's how they work. This stimulates an immune response in a slightly different way, but it's still fundamentally the same immune response.
could you say a little bit more about the um, the the connection between uh, social hierarchy and thinking around race uh, in the American South and how that kind of maps on to the political divisions that we see now and and the um, affinity for certain kinds of uh, strongman type messaging. So I mentioned earlier social dominance orientation, and this is a conscious or unconscious belief that a collection of things makes you more American or makes you fit to be at the highest level. And what you see uh, societally is that anytime something threatens that lofty perch, that position at the top, it inspires anger and anxiousness and and violent reactions, right? Um, when you look at the Reconstruction South and the post-Reconstruction South, um, whites responded, you know, with 3,000 lynchings uh, in response to black people suddenly having the right to vote um, and to hold elected office. Uh, the book talks about the Colfax massacre um, as an example of of that kind of reaction. At the same time, things have been changing radically in our society for the past 50 years or so. Um, the number of white people white people are going to be a minority by the year 2044. Uh, we see people who had previously been treated as untouchables and outcasts, uh, particularly the LGBT community, um, gaining greater and greater acceptance, putting them, more, you know, people treating as well. Yes, here's this white evangelical person and here's this LGBT person, and they're both deserving of equal levels of respect and protection within our society, right? And that's terrifying because it threatens how they feel what their position should be in our society um, and other other things including uh, the role of women changing um, and college education is becoming more and more common also kind of threatening what they feel is their position um, where they yearn for an America that looks much more like 1952 than you know 2022 is going to be and and one thing I always find like the, the one thing that's always omitted there is the uh, uh, preponderance of uh, government subsidized social programs, right? And, uh, for particular groups of people in the middle of the twentieth century, right? Because you always see this fondness for you know mid twentieth century America alongside uh, rhetoric about limited government, and it's just like do you like not have access to a history book that well i mean actually sort of no right? yeah well you get a history book that uh that what it calls that uh you know talks about the american uh, south and you know talks about metaphorically prisoners with jobs so to speak if uh if you like um thor ragnarok um and Fundamentally, uh, if you look back at the 50s, you know, it was much, much worse for black people and for LGBT people and for women uh, yeah, with all the things that came with segregation and redlining and everything else. But it also fails to look at what made things good for white people, which included high marginal tax rates and higher government uh, outlays, 
Uh, it ignores uh, Lyndon, the effects on wealth inequality of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program and the effects of uh, the New Deal by FDR. Uh, all of these things reduced wealth inequality and uh, increased the need for labor. Um, and where we've arrived at now is when you look at it, and this has been done time and time again, but the insecurities of the white evangelical base are not founded in economics. On average, they're considerably better off than the average American and considerably older. They're, they are doing well enough, right, compared to other Americans, particularly if you take that their income um, is higher than those you would find around them in the rural South, typically, right? Um, they're doing just fine. Um, so what their fears and anger is coming from is primarily social instead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, some listeners may think that the, the, the thesis of your book about sort of this, um, uh, the sort of conditions that, um, lead to, well, the thesis, well, why don't you state the thesis of your book and then, and then I'll say why I don't think it's all that uh, provocative. I have a follow-up question. So are you talking about the fascism uh, part, part of it? To, to do with like the, the, the sort of necessary conditions for fascism being present and the fact that these conditions haven't gone away. Right. So fascist movements are a particular type of right-wing populism. And one of the big things I note is that fascism can look very much different based off of which country it sprang from, that the, the country that the fascism came from has its own particular flavor based off of that country's history and sociology and demographic, everything else, right? Um, that fascism is not, you know, bad architecture, silly mustaches, and, and disastrous land wars in Asia, right? <laughs> Um, it, it's, it, it's, and I'm going to name off some of the things that always jump out at me, but, uh, misogyny and sexual anxiety, uh, are, yeah, and strict gender roles are generally typically part of a fascist movement, very traditionalist. Typically, uh, it exploits, uh, conservative, the fascist movement exploits, uh, conservative religious values within that country to uh, merge the oligarchs and the, the, the masses that are socially conservative to give them a common cause. Um, it protects the interests of oligarchs. It weakens labor and targets labor. Um, it treats the poor and the weak with contempt. It takes a very Malthusian view of the role of government. Uh, Hannah Arendt uh, said that uh, it was very much like communism of he who will not work shall not eat. Um, you, you have a penchant for uh, conspiracy theories and, and thinking, uh, whether it's uh, the stab in the back by the Jews after World War I that, that caused Germany to surrender, or the, the big lie in America that the election was stolen by shadowy somebodies. It's, it's, the, the election was illegitimate, that Trump would have won if he hadn't been stabbed in the back by somebody. And they're just looking for a scapegoat. Um, above it all, there's always a single powerful leader who interprets the will of the people, right? Um, you know, and that's, uh, that's uh, Umberto Ecos. 
um, from, the, from the, the mythic past. It's right. also part of that, the mythic past and the descent into depravity uh, caused by others who aren't part of the real Americans or real Germans or real uh, Spaniards or real Italians, right? Um, it, it, it's about reclaiming greatness, whether it's the Second Roman Empire, uh, as Mussolini wanted. Um, it's reclaiming some kind of greatness. Now, I keep referring to the fascist history back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, but we see it again in kind of uh, the Russian-Hungarian model we see today, which is, which is actually, if you're looking for where the U.S. is going, it's not Panzers and Stukas. It looks a lot more like Orban's Hungary, which has gotten a lot. When I wrote the book, Tucker Carlson hadn't gone to Hungary and and talked and said, yes, this is the Amer model for America yet. But I pointed and said, this is probably where they want to go. And we're going to see more of this. And if we want to understand the future of the United States, look at Hungary. And then. Four months after the book comes out, Tucker Carlson goes to Hungary and says, "Yes, we should definitely do this." So, so that, so, that, oh, right? no. so that's where I, so that's where I wanted to, that's where I wanted to, to, to take this, right? So, because it may, you know, someone may think that 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 the, this thesis is provocative, right? That America is headed for fascism is going to be driven by the religious right. There, there are some elements that political scientists and political philosophers point to, uh, like features of fascism, like Jason Stanley, right? where you say like, okay, uh, the right in general fills out quite a few of these, but when you look specifically at the re religious right with this kind of like, like, t like no basis in historical fact, uh, mythic past, where Thomas Jefferson is somehow like an evangelical born-again Christian who would be completely comfortable in, you know, whatever church now, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and, and then you've got this sort of... Uh, uh, unreality, uh, anti-intellectual uh, attitudes towards science, right? Um, so, on a theoretical level, it's not—it's—it's it's really not all that far-fetched, right? But then, when you look at folks like Tucker Carlson, you've got—it's my understanding. I just learned this on Lawfare a few weeks ago. Uh, Rod Dreher was was on a mm -hmm. uh, fellowship uh, in Hungary yep. that was funded by Orban's government. You've got a lot of folks with pretty close ties who are sort of, um, I guess, not uh, just ties. They drive the direction of the party. If Tucker Carlson tomorrow right. goes out and says that, I don't know. Um, I'm looking around the room here that fish tank water, right. Cures COVID, right. If, if he, if he goes out today, I guarantee you there's going to be a run on aquariums tomorrow. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And if he says any Republican that speaks up against fish tank water is a cure for COVID is a, you know, a cultural Marxist Pelosi loving Hitler dictator Biden. Right. If he goes right. out and does that, the base will follow. Right. right? Uh, and these people are expressing positive. are expressing uh, explicit affinity for Victor and they're like wow Victor Orban like he's got the formula right we got to we we got to do that we got to do what Hungary's doing and that's that's basically giving uh US politicians who want to remain in Carlson's good graces the green light to point at Hungary is well look at what they're doing to you know look at the fact that they banned trans people in Hungary look at the fact 
that they banned women's studies programs and uh, in at universities in Hungary. Look at them setting up a university to to teach um, conservative thought. Look at them uh, taking a hard line on Muslims in Hungary and saying this is the model for us. And well, what about democracy? And that's the thing is that Hungary has effectively ended democracy. They have tilted the election so thoroughly that there is effectively no way the opposition can win an election in Hungary um, through combination of selecting which people get to vote, um, selecting uh, gerrymandering, voter suppression, uh, control of the media, uh, the, the, theoretically to retain control of Hungary's parliament or Bonds Fidesz party only needs to win 20 something percent of the vote. Um, it's essentially similar to what we're seeing in the U.S., where it doesn't, the next presidential election, Biden could win the popular vote by four and a half to five percent and still very, very conceivably lose. We could, Democrats, in order to hold on to the Senate, need to consistently win elections, win the popular vote nationally by seven or eight percent, and it's growing. In order to overcome gerrymanders in a lot of states like Wisconsin and Michigan, you need to have blowout elections where Democrats win the popular vote by 15 to 20 percent, even at the same time as Republicans are instituting relatively draconian voter suppression laws to keep certain people from voting. And that's um, and, and as a backstop, what we can clearly see is Republicans putting in place the ability to overturn elections if they don't like the results. The results come back in and the state legislature says, yeah, we think there was fraud. No basis. Or, oh, look, uh, somebody took a picture of a postal van doing something, right? Well, that's obviously proof of fraud and we're going to throw it out. We can't determine who the real winner was. And so the legislature is going to decide anyway, right? Um, the late legislature that, by the way, was probably gerrymandered uh, to the point where that state's no longer a democracy at the state level. Well, that lack of democracy is coming to us at a federal level. Yeah. So I, one thing that fascinates me is the, is the, uh, the way that the, so there's obviously there's been gerrymandering as long as there's been democracy, right? I mean, like why, why, uh, why, why persuade the voters to pick you when you can just pick your voters, right? Um, Absolutely. Uh, but but it's gotten like something happened in 2010 where you had a kind of like, uh, as is often the case, right? You had uh, the party that was the opposite party of the president, right? Experienced some electoral gains uh, mm -hmm. just due to the sort of back and forth of, of politics, right? But that coincided with developments in computer modeling, right? Yes. Such that when the 2010 census was taken, um, that th there was this ability to do gerrymandering in a way that was so much more precise and effective and sort of optimized, yes. if you like, uh, than had been done before. And there's a sense in which it kind of like something overwhelming would have to happen in order to reverse it. Correct. And then you also have to keep in mind that the Supreme Court decision of Shelby versus Holder uh, basically made it possible for states to do even worse gerrymandering that had even worse racial effects um, to even further pack and crack, uh, pack black voters into um, 
into deep, deep blue districts and then crack apart the districts to provide, you know, a necessary margin for all the other Republicans in the state. And they they can decide, well, how much would Democrats have to win the state by in order to start flipping seats around? Because at some point, yes, gerrymanders collapse, but you got to win by 15 to 20 points for them to start breaking, typically. Shelby, that was the case out of North Carolina, right? Uh, yes, I believe so. Right. It was so the one that it was the, it, the, argue, the, the argument, the argument, right, from from the from the state where that was gerrymandered was basically like, no, 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 we're not trying to disenfranchise black voters. We're trying to disenfranchise Democrats. And it just so well, happened that, that uh, people. Of no, color- you're thinking of Gill versus Whitford more. The big argument in Shelby versus uh, Holder was that the Voting Rights Act required that districting be run through the uh, through a commission at the federal level, that basically the, the federal government was going to take states that had historically been discriminatory and require them to submit their districts through the federal government so you couldn't get really crazy gerrymanders that, that disenfranchise people or systematically disenfranchise blacks. <coughs> um, what happened with Shelby versus Holder is the Supreme Court said, well, you know, Jim Crow was a long time ago. Lots has changed. You know, we don't, it's unfair to these Southern states to punish them for things that happened so long ago and clearly won't happen again. I look at the last time the Voting Rights Act came up, it passed virtually unanimously. No, and Antonin Scalia actually, Scalia said, uh, no Republican is going to vote vote against the Voting Rights Act. So the idea that somehow that this would come back and, you know, and they basically said, Congress, you have to go back and redo to, to have the enforcement mechanisms. You need to go back and redo it again. Right. Um, and then, of course, Republicans, as soon as uh, this happened, uh, you can't get a Republican to vote to uh, renew the Voting Rights Act. You can't get a one. Right. Um, you know, it's ironically the only time Antonin Scalia has been right is uh, when he wrote in, in his minority uh, in his dissent said that you know legalizing homosexuality will eventually lead to gay marriage. But that's pretty much about as far as he's been right, as far as I can tell. Um, so yeah, that's Shelby versus Holder, and that's probably the even more so than. Um, Citizens United is the most disastrous decision for democracy in America in the past few decades. Yeah. Um, so what's your what's your prognosis? Right. If you were looking at the U.S. as, you know, um, as uh, and trying to, uh, you know, as if it were like a foreign um, sovereign state. Right. And, and, and sort of predicting like outcomes and, and uh, you know, what policymakers should expect, like uh, what 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 outcomes would you predict and um, follow up to that? Uh, what can we do about it? Well, the what we can the, what I would expect the most. And this is just the most likely outcomes. Um, most likely outcomes is the is Trump retakes the White House in 2024. You mean most likely bad outcome or most likely outcome simpliciter? The latter. What is what is the if you if you pick the pathways of things that are most likely to happen, right? 
Um, I think Biden is going to struggle to win a second term in 2024. Uh, I think that Trump is almost certainly going to be the nominee unless something bizarre happens like him um, having a massive fatal coronary. Um, I think that there's no way he would win the national vote that he's going to be put in place again, either with a with a, the Electoral College putting him in place the way they did in 2016 with a minority of the Electoral College vote. Or I think that it will be because that states and Congress have worked to overturn election results in individual states to get what they want, which is the uh, decision on the president being kicked to the House of Representatives where each state gets one vote, which favors Republicans. Um, I think that a second Trump term will be even more unhinged than the first. Uh, I think that the gallop towards uh, authoritarianism will be even faster uh, with a Supreme Court that's already leaning 6-3 and potentially 7-2. I think that uh, it's highly likely that um, Trump is going to take office with one vacant seat on the Supreme Court held open by Mitch McConnell after after Breyer retires. Uh, so we're looking at a 7-2 uh, rubber stamp Supreme Court with a Trump administration that's installed. Um, you think Roberts yes, goes along with that? It doesn't matter. Right, right, right. But I'm just, but I'm, I'm, yeah, sure. But I'm, but do you think Roberts goes along with it? Goes along with which part of it? Any part of it. Roberts probably doesn't go along with the election steal, but it's too late. You've got enough textualists on the court who are, who are willing to be textualists over the good of the country. The, the decision we saw in the, the Texas with abortion and weird novel arguments. Yeah, um, I think I think Trump gets put into office five, three um, on on shenanigans if it comes down to that. I, also, I think it's also just as equally likely that he wins the Electoral College legitimately the way he did 2016, despite losing the national vote um, afterwards. So, wait, uh, so how does McConnell keep the seat open, though? Does Manchin not does, does he does he not? I'm assuming that I'm assuming that uh, Republicans retake the Senate in 2022. Ah, got it. Okay. Um, By I, how many seats? Two or maybe two, one or two. As many as they need. Yeah, it doesn't matter. They can they can deny Biden. Uh, they they will de deny Biden all his judicial nominations the last two years of his term. Sure. Um, I think things are going to get really, really ugly for LGBT people. I think that we're going to see a lot of weird and novel arguments to drive us towards a, a, a ban on abortion throughout the United States um, that, this, that the court will buy off on or uh, things like being able to sue out-of-state doctors who perform abortions um, using uh, felony murder type rules. Uh, I think that uh, same-sex marriage is probably toast. Uh, the trans military ban is coming back. Um, I think that eventually their their goals for the LGBT community are the the worst. Um, basically, creating a religious exemption for discrimination. Um, they're going to try and eventually overturn Lawrence versus Texas and make it legal for states to criminalize uh, uh, sodomy or homosexuality again. Um, when they say they want to make America great again, this is what they mean. They want to bring back mandatory prayer in schools. 
They want to um, make it up to each state whether or not birth control is legal. Um, this is this is where we're going, and this it's not pretty. It's going to be particularly ugly because one of the things that I point out is that this is essentially a fascist movement led by uh, who's a group of people whose values. Um, beliefs, social structure is very, very different from the rest of America. It's a minoritarian rule, uh, minoritarian autocratic rule by a group of people who is, doesn't really reflect what the rest of America wants. And the part where I fail to make a concrete prediction is what happens to America then? Do we just kind of sink into miserable, gray, hopeless Russian apathy the way the Hungarians and Russians have under competitive authoritarianism? Or do is there a point where blue states have enough and they say, you know what, forget it? No, we're not playing anymore. Where they recognize that this is no longer a democracy, where they recognize that no matter how their people vote, no matter how the people of the U.S. vote, they can't change things um, and that their citizens are being brutalized to fulfill the religious whims of a minority. And if you think that that's overstating it, remember, Jared Kushner, California can die because they didn't vote for my, for my father-in-law. Yeah. Um, could you, so competitive authoritarian is a technical term. Could you define that for the, sure. So that's, that's what we see like in Hungary right now, right? Yeah, that's as competitive authoritarianism is described in great detail in chapter 10. But it's essentially where the authoritarian wins an election and then starts rigging the system, filling it with cronies, uh, rigging the judiciary, the election commissions, the media, bribes, removing people that could get in his way. Basically setting up a system where you still have elections, but the ruling party effectively can't lose the elections that the elections are essentially free. Anybody can drop a, a ballot in the in the box and it'll probably be counted. But it's not fair because that ballot that you dropped in there has basically zero effect on the outcome, e even collectively, that the uh, outcome has already been predetermined using legal but unfair uh, techniques like gerrymandering. Or in Hungary, uh, they let expats, they don't let expats vote. Right. People who choose to leave Hungary, but they let ethnic Hungarians who live in other countries submit a vote because the people who chose to leave are generally the ones with higher education who um, don't like living under Orban's uh, regime. Right. So elections that are free, but not fair. Yeah. Yes. Good summary. Yeah. Where 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 and, and, and arriving at that system by exploiting um sort of uh exploiting loopholes in institutional arrangements well it's not just exploiting but creating the loopholes yourself right. you right. can you know um you can the an example of what poland did which is also sliding a competitive authoritarianism is it used to be that the polish supreme court um you know functioned a little bit like ours that it could say okay this law is unconstitutional well, they changed the rules so that the only way the Supreme Court could overrule the ruling party is if there was a two-thirds majority, 
and they promptly added five justices right. to the court, right? right? Um, meaning that, well, <laughs> yeah, um, there was there's no conceivable way for the court to overturn anything the government did, uh, and that's it's basically you rig the game. You either exploit the loopholes or you create the loopholes yourself to ensure that you get the predetermined outcome you want in any given election or any given court case. And and this is you think the most likely scenario, at least for the at least for the sort of like we'll say five year, uh, well seven year time horizon, something like that. I'm and saying that by that. by 2030, uh, this is where I expect us to probably be in a competitive authoritarian um, situation. Um, that and because and I'm not going out on a limb here because this has been the way that democracies have failed most often since the since the end of the cold war and my book cites two different sets of scholars that approach this topic from different angles and they both kind of came to the same conclusion yeah it's not coups it's not murdering it's not it's not military juntas it's somebody gets elected they change the rules they never lose again and you've got folks at the head of this sort of uh conservative movement uh which happens to be extreme elements of the conservative movement but they but they're they're the ones running it right, uh, who have said, yeah, this is the playbook. So everybody's pretty much okay with the playbook. Um, the, I shouldn't say everybody. Two-thirds of House Republicans were okay with that playbook. Um, about half of Senate Republicans were okay with that playbook, and they're working very, very hard to push out anyone who isn't. That's right. Um and this is going to be a huge problem going forward because at the state level, you can see Raffensperger, the secretary of state in Georgia, being pushed out. You can see the secretary of state in Arizona being pushed out for upholding the election. You can see Liz Cheney being pushed out for being willing to call the insurrection on January 6th what it was. Um, that any Republican who doesn't go along with this is branded a traitor. And I honestly expect the Republican Party, given that 70% of it believes the narrative that Trump actually won the election, um, to go along with the idea of pushing out anybody else who doesn't go along with this, this the big lie. And that's fundamentally what's so dangerous in this because we have a movement that isn't grounded in reality and is willing to scrap democracy to get what they want in the long run and they recognize and this is something i point out in my book is that the culture war they're fighting is one that they recognized 15 20 years ago that they couldn't win so they're going to win it and they couldn't do it democratically so rather than changing or giving up, they just decided to end democracy. Hmm. Well, on that happy note. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my wife has joked that, that the book should come with a prescription for Wellbutrin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, um, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk and share your expertise. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.